Well, this this month of December indeed has been a particularly fruitful time here at East Point Church as several children have been born in the last month or so to us. We celebrate with the Taylors. Uh, we remember the Marcuses and we celebrate with the Craigheads as each of them God has given the gift of a new child into their home. We, we look forward to celebrating with the Withers and we look forward to celebrating with the Wooders as we anticipate God blessing them with their first child in this coming year. And by God's grace, many more. Amen. I was thinking this past week, indeed, why does God give us children? Why does God give us children? I came up with five reasons that I think that God gives us children. At least these have, this has been an experience in my own life. And number one, for us to experience life-giving joy. There's a joy that overwhelms you, it overcomes you when you realize that you have participated in the bringing of another life into this world. That's what Stevie Wonder sung about when he said, isn't she lovely? He wasn't thinking about his wife, he was thinking about his, his daughter that had just been born. What a marvelous thing our love is wrought. Life-giving joy, but not just life-giving joy. It reminds us and gives us a greater sense of who God is as Father. I mean, when I, these past uh, almost 18 years now that I have been a father, it has really impressed on me more and more of the nature of the fatherhood of God. Number three, it reminds us of our own sin and frailty. Reminds me all the time of the impact that my sin has on my children and how frail I am and weak I am to really control and order their lives. It reminds me of my need to hand them over to God. Number four, reminds me of my need to pray anything causes me to pray it's my children I see them and desire that they not fall into the pitfalls that I fell into I see them and desire that they not make the mistakes that I made and thus I am resigned my I have to resign myself to pray and to pray and to pray God gives us children we would need that we would pray Number five, that we would know love like nothing else on earth. I mean, there is a love that a parent has for a child that is inexpressible. And you think you love, but you don't really experience it to the depth until you actually have a child. And there is a love there. That exceeds anything on earth. Why does God give us children? I think at least for those five reasons. 
But then I thought to myself, well, why does God give us his child? Why did God give us his child? Not only why does God give us children, but why, does God, why did God give us his child? You know, remarkably, I came up with those safe five reasons. That we might know life-giving joy. That Christ has come into the world that we might have life and have that life more abundantly. Gave him to us that we might have a greater sense of who God is as Father. You, you never know really the fatherhood of God until you really come to know Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus himself who first prayed our Father. I might have a greater sense of who God is as Father. To remind us of our own sin and frailty. The Christ has come into the world because we are sinners, because we are frail, because we are broken. And to behold Christ in all of his beauty and splendor and truth is to behold yourself in your own brokenness and frailty. You don't know him. If beholding him, you're not broken. Give him to us. And we would come to grips with our sin and our frailty. It reminds us of our need to pray. Gives him to us that we would pray. Isn't it interesting that his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus, in his wisdom and in his grace, granted unto them and therefore unto us the model prayer. But he not only taught his disciples to pray, he exemplified prayer before them. Even in his most dire hours, Jesus asked his disciples to do what? Pray. Because he was going away to pray. Jesus needed to pray. How much more so do we? Lastly, to know love like nothing else on earth. There is no greater love in the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. There is no greater love than this from the lips of Jesus himself that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Then he says, I have called you, my friend. There is no greater love, no greater love than Christ you know you will not experience a truer love than when you experience Jesus Christ. Why did God give us children? I think at least for those five reasons, and yet it seems even for those same five reasons, he has given us his son. And this is what The prophet Isaiah has said to the nation. 
the nation of Israel. You see, he, te- he comes to them in their, in their dire straits. He comes to them in their darkness and he says, guess what? A child is to be born unto you. A son is to be given. A precious child. You know, I think Isaiah chapter 9 is perhaps one of the more familiar passages in Scripture, especially during the Christmas season. Most of us are quite familiar with it. Even if we didn't know prior to today where it is found in the Bible, we know that it is in the Bible. Because we hear it all the time. Particularly at Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is, is given. You hear it in Handel's Messiah. You read it on Hallmark Christmas cards. In fact, it's become so familiar, it's almost become trivial. And most people think of it in the same way that they think of Santa Claus is coming to town. It wasn't true. That wasn't so. For the nation of Israel, when they heard, for unto us child is born unto us a son is given for the faithful in particular those in judah in in, in isaiah's day these words were not trite or trivial they were most blessed for they were full of hope they were full of joy they were full of the love of god and in this passage this is what we see We see the love of God for his people. We see God promising joy to his people. We see God granting unto them the blessedness of hope in the midst of their despair. Hope of their salvation. Hope of their recovery from their condition. We see in this passage a people. See a people in darkness. But to those people in darkness, we see that a son is given. When that son is given, we also see that a passion is promised. But it comes to a people in darkness. It comes to a people in darkness. As chapter 9 begins, it begins with a but. Or perhaps in some of your translations, it begins with a nevertheless. And this but and this nevertheless points us back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, where God has determined to bring judgment upon Israel. He's going to bring judgment upon Israel, bring judgment upon Judah in particular, because she has forsaken his way. And rather than the nation trusting in God, they have trusted in human wisdom. They have trusted in in human alliances. And rather than depending on God, Judah is, is, is making alliances with foreign kings. And has sought the way and the wisdom of the world rather than the way and the wisdom of God. This darkness has overcome them. This darkness has overcome their heart. And the darkness that has overcome their heart led to the darkness of God's judgment. Namely, the Assyrian nation. 
For God is going to bring the Assyrian nation upon Judah, all of Israel, and judge them for their lack of trust and for their disobedience to God. And there's a darkness. But this darkness is not unfamiliar to us. But what this darkness is, is the darkness of their sin. It's a darkness of sin that leads to the darkness of God's judgment. It always does, beloved. It always does. It's a darkness that we are all too familiar with. It manifests itself in two ways. In Israel's world and in our world today. Manifests itself in two ways. And the first one is that we are born in this darkness. We are born in this darkness. It's, it's, it's like the darkness of a mother's womb. It envelops us. It is all around us from the moment that we are conceived. Psalm. 51 in verse 3, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Those babies that we celebrated this, this past month or so have been brought into a world in which they bring with them hearts that are laden with sin. And in that sense, they come from the darkness of their mother's womb with hearts that are dark. This is true because of the sin of Adam. The Bible teaches us that we are woefully affected by the sin of Adam. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the Bible says we all sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, a darkness fell over all creation, but not just over the creation, but even over the hearts of Adam and Eve and all of the generations that would proceed from them. So that every Human being is born into this world, is born in the darkness of sin. We all sinned in Adam. We are by nature in disobedience and thus the objects of God's righteous judgment. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 reminds us by nature we are all children of wrath. By nature, we stand under the wrath, the righteous judgments of God. Every human being born into this world has the seeds of sin waiting to blossom into the flower of disobedience and despair. And every one of us manifests it. Every child sooner or later, will manifest the sin with which they were born. It's a darkness. 
It's a darkness we are born into, and yet it is not only a darkness that we are born into, it is a darkness we choose. The ones who are born into the darkness, beloved, the Bible says that they love the darkness. And thus, left to ourselves, we choose darkness rather than light. Left to our own devices. We will all choose darkness rather than light. And so the judgment of God upon us is not just that we are in Adam, but also that we would choose to live as Adam did every day. You look at Adam. You can ask yourself the question, why, Adam? Adam and Eve, why did you choose to disobey? And I can tell you with most assurance that if you or I were in Adam's condition, we would have chosen the same choice. You don't believe it? We do it every day. We choose disobedience every day. That's what the Bible says. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Love the darkness. Rather than the light. We, like Judah, have chosen against God. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 and 12. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Any more clear than that? Does he need to get any more clear than that? Who chooses good? No one. Who seeks after God? No one. Who is righteous? No one. Not even one. As the darkness into which we are born is the darkness we, we choose, actively choose every day. Every day. It's dark. It's dark. It was dark for Israel. It's dark for every human being that comes into this world. Why? Because we trample on God's grace. We transgress God's law and we refuse to tremble at God's word. dark it was dark for them because that's what they had done they had trampled on the grace of God they had transgressed the law of God and they had refused to tremble at the word of God and here where God was the butt. Nevertheless, he says, 
But nevertheless, nevertheless, you have trampled upon my grace. Nevertheless, you have transgressed my law. Nevertheless, you have refused to tremble at my word. Nevertheless, into your darkness, a great light is going to shine. Into this dark morose of sin and this dark night of despair, God tells us that he is going to shine a great light. It's going to be a light to the nations. This light will shine so bright that not only will Judah behold it, but it will be a light to all the nations. For it will be to those who walked in darkness, they will behold this great light. To those who dwelt in the land of darkness, into this a light will shine, piercing the darkness. So that you who were in darkness... God has shown this great light. It's a glorious conjunction. If you read it, don't miss it. God puts a but. But God. R.C. Sproul calls it a holy but. It's a glorious but. When you see but God. But you who were in darkness, God has shown this great light. But you who were once aliens from God, God has brought into his household. But you who were once children of disobedience, God has made sons and daughters of God. But God has shown his light into your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, in the, of, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the light. That has shown into the darkness of your heart. And you behold in the face of Jesus. But how is this light to come? How will those dwelling in darkness see this great light? The promise to them is that a child would be born. A son would be given. The people who dwelt in darkness will be given a son, a child. A light to the nations and all those who dwell in darkness. One commentator says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is in a child. It's in a child. 
Why does he give us his son? Because we are afraid. We should be afraid of the dark. And the terrors that lie in the dark. But for everything that terrorizes us, God given this child. This child that he promises is a child that's already been mentioned before in chapter 7 and, and verse 14. Isaiah promised that a child would be born, that this child would be conceived of a virgin. And that you shall call this child's name Emmanuel. And you can imagine when the nation heard Isaiah talking and, and prophesying in, in chapter 7, they talk, they, they'd heard him and said, what do you mean a child is going to bring come forth from a virgin? What do you mean that this child's name is going to be Emmanuel? It's ridiculous. It's impossible. Yet we come to chapter 9. So they don't get it twisted and so they don't miss it. He gives them more detail as to who this blessed child is. The reason that this is possible is because this child, you're going to know him as a wonderful counselor. You're going to know him as a mighty God. You're going to know him as everlasting father. You're going to know him as the prince of peace. This isn't any ordinary child. This is going to be a manifestation of God himself. God revealing himself in the flesh. When I say this child is coming, I'm saying that God himself is coming. A wonderful counselor. Why? Because those who are in darkness are foolish. And they need the wisdom of God. Wonderful counselor means supernatural wisdom is to be found in him. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 24. The Bible says that Christ is our wisdom. That Christ is the wisdom of, of God. And in and, and verse 30 of that same chapter, it says Christ is our wisdom from God. That in Christ, we find the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God whereby we may come to God. Understand this, that when God sends Christ into the world, what God is doing is revealing to us the way unto God. How we might worship him, how how we might know him, how we might adore him. Breaking the foolishness of our ways. And and, And it's plain. That's the beauty of the wisdom of God. It's plain. Never mind what some of these people tell you. The Bible is not filled with secret codes. It's plain. 
The way unto salvation is plain. The life of Jesus laid out before us is plain. It's not difficult to understand. It doesn't take rocket science to be saved. The wisdom of God in Christ Jesus, the supernatural counsel that he gives, is that salvation is open. And the way unto God is plain. Is the wisdom of men and women who complicate the gospel. The wisdom of God in salvation through Christ Jesus is plain. There will be nobody, beloved, standing before the judgment seat of God who could say, I didn't understand. Not only a wonderful counselor, because those in darkness are foolish and in need of the wisdom of God, but he is also a mighty God, because those in darkness are weak and in need of the power of God. Are weak and in need of the power of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 also says that Christ is the power of God. But not only is Christ the power of God, Romans 1 and 16 reminds us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Weakness is the result of sin in our lives. Weak unto saving ourselves. Weak unto attaining unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. Weak unto making ourselves acceptable unto God. But in Christ, there is power. His power is a power to save. That is the power of the gospel. And the child is not just described as God, but he is described as a mighty God. Because he will overcome all the strongholds of sin in your life. And he will give you strength unto believing in Christ unto salvation. He is a mighty God. He's not only a mighty God, he is also referred to as everlasting father. Why? Because those in darkness are orphans. And they stand in need of the love of God. They're orphans and they stand in need of the love of God. And this is Christ. He's come into the world that we might know the Father. 
This is the mystery of all mysteries. That he who has come as the son has come and is revealing unto us the father. What a great mystery it is. That when the disciples asked him, Jesus, show us the father. In John chapter 14, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the father. Because the child to be born is the child. Who is the everlasting Father? He is the one who has come to gather his children into his family that they may know a love like no other love on earth. He is an everlasting Father, He is a principle. Why? Because those in darkness are broken and they stand in need of healing. They're broken. They're broken. They're broken in their relationships with each other. They're broken in their relationship with God. They're broken in their relationship with creation. There is nothing but brokenness in the dark. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 tells us that God has in Christ Jesus reconciled us unto himself, whereby we become whole again. Wholeness, wholeness. That is the idea of shalom. Jesus is our reconciliation. Jesus is making all things new. The wellness of our soul, our bodies, our minds, indeed the entire universe is to be found in him. You know what the promise is in in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6? The promise of this shalom that will come through the child is that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And what is the promise? And a little child, a little child shall lead them. Because the brokenness that we see in this world is not to be accomplished by any other means than the prince of Peace manifesting his glory in all the universe. He's beginning with our hearts. Eventually, his peace will engulf the whole creation. And he will make all things, all things, all things. Notice what he says here in Isaiah chapter 11. You see that natural enemies shall become friends. Natural enemies shall become friends. The hostility that has been there will be removed. That even we who were once enemies of God now become 
God's children. And to this child, the increase of his government will have no end. It will go on and on and on. You know, with Jesus, more government is a good thing. As you listen to all the political pugnants and as you debate among yourselves whether or not we need more government in our lives and if the government is becoming too big and, 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 and all this Obamacare, and all, you got Jesus care. And you want more government in your life. Because you want more Jesus in your life. Somebody has said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a lie. Because Jesus has absolute power and there is no corruption in him. And his government is ever increasing. His reign gets better and better and sweeter and sweeter. And the longer I am with Jesus, the more I wonder how come I wasn't with Jesus sooner. I have people often say things like, man, I look back on my life and I have no regrets. They better than me. I have one huge regret. That I was not underneath the government and the blessed government of the Lord Jesus Christ sooner. Because every day with Jesus, the songwriter says, is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me, and he's the one I'm waiting for because every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And you don't have to say amen. I know that's right. I know that's the truth. Every day, every day is better than the day before. Don't always seem like it. Some days seem like that. But believe me that there is a sovereign God controlling and governing all of your life. And this day is sweeter and better than the day before. Every day with Jesus, it's just that way. You notice what the Bible says? His government increases. You get more of Jesus every day. More of Jesus. More of his reign. More of his blessedness. More of his power. More of his strength. More of his love. Every day. This is God. God sent his son into our lives so that the government of his son would increase more. One commentator says this, we had no claim on him, speaking of Jesus, and yet God voluntarily gave his son to be sacrificed for our sins. Gave him to us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond our measure. That he would give his only son. To make a wretch. His treasure. This is what he has done. This is what he has done. For unto us. A child is born. Unto us. A son is given. 
given, given to us. I want to impress that upon you. That Jesus has been given for us. Do you know what? You read the Bible and you'll see that what God does over and over again, he does for us. It's an amazing truth. Those who are unworthy, those who are undeserving, over and over again, God says, I'm going to do this for you. Come to the Lord's table every Sunday. The Bible says Jesus took the bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is what? Broken and given to you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Over and over again. God says, I do this for you. For unto you, a child is born. Unto you, the son is given. How do we know this is true? How do we know? I mean, I mean, God, yeah, okay, I hear that, but how do we know you're really going to do this? That all sounds good. How do we know that is not just an empty promise? Says, because I got passion. And I'm not just making a passionate promise. I'm promising you my passion. At the end of Verse 7, the most important words in all the text. And the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. This, beloved, is key to the whole passage. As remarkable as everything else is, God's zeal is going to get this Done. Like I said, this is not just a passionate promise, but this is the promise of God's passion. That's what zeal is. It's his passion. It's his jealousy. In New English translation, translates it as his intense devotion. In New Living Translation says his passionate commitment. This is the key to this passage. This is the key to God's promises throughout the Bible. The reason that we can place trust in the promises of God is because he backs those promises up with his own zeal and his passion to perform them. Our God is a zealous God. He is a jealous God. He is zealous for his glory, but he's not only zealous and jealous for his glory. Beloved, he is zealous and jealous for his people. Isaiah 
Chapter 42 and verse 13 tells us that God stirs up his zeal, his passion, as he fights for his people. And Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us that God's zeal is like a fire. It burns. It burns. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24, the Bible tells us that our God is a jealous God, but he is also a what? Consuming fire. Because he burns with passion. Someone has said, our God is en fuego. He is on fire. Ray Orland says that our God is on fire for the triumph of his grace. You know, he burns with that. He burns with a passion for his glory and for his people. This is why he does what he does. Because he is consumed with his grace manifesting in your life. He doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber. But he burns that you would be saved. His zeal consumes him every day. And his people would know him. And embrace him. Because he knows. And not only does this bring him glory. But he knows that this is the best of all scenarios for you. And he loves you that much. He burns with that passion. You know, everyone is passionate. Everyone is passionate. But I know some of you are saying this morning that you wish you were more passionate about God. God is passionate about you. He's zealous for you. But unfortunately, we don't return the zeal. We don't have like passion in return. And I hear people say it all the time, man, I'm just not passionate about God. Well, it's not because you don't have passion. It's not because you don't have zeal. You have passion, you have zeal, it's just misdirected. We all got passions. All of us. Football. Hello. Facebook. Food. We're all passionate about something, games. Guys, girls, we're all passionate about something, music and movies and money. Perhaps nothing is more passionate and and nothing takes up more zeal than ourselves. All of us are passionate about me. I love me some me. We all have passion. It's just misdirected. God has passion, and it is directed toward us. And when you understand that, then you understand the need to direct your passion and zeal toward him. 
And if you don't have it, if you think that you are lacking it, here's my admonition to you. It's very simple. Repent. Repent of your lack of passion. Turn your face to the wall and cry out to Christ. Lord, he doesn't need to increase your passion. He just needs to redirect it. He said, how do I do that? Well, how about fasting? How about fasting? You think I'm talking about food. I'm talking about food, but also fast from football. Fast from Facebook. Turn off the television, turn down the music, turn away from the computer, and turn to Christ. I guarantee you, you'll find him there, desiring you, zealous for you, and loving the fact that you have turned away from those things and you're desiring to turn to him. He's there. He's there. Remove the distractions. And you'll find he's been there all along. And his zeal for you has not waned one iota. He's faithful in his justice. He'll forgive you of your misdirection. And he'll ignite that flame in you. And do something else. I got a few other suggestions if you don't, if you want them. Teach a class. Start a Bible study at work or at home. Start a prayer group. You really want to get radical? Adopt a child. You want to get some zeal for God. You know, here's the good news. Thankfully. Thankfully, my salvation is not determined by my zeal for God, but his for me. Your salvation is not determined by your zeal for God. It is determined by his zeal for you. Thankfully, our zeal is not omnipotent. God's zeal is. Ah. Zeal is why Christ was born. Zeal is why Christ suffered and died. Zeal is why he rose again. Zeal is why he's coming again. Zeal is why I'm saved. Zeal, God's zeal, is why I stay saved. Why? Because my sin is not greater than God's zeal to save me. It's not. I can't out the passion of God to save. That's why I stay saved. That's why my misdirected zeal doesn't lead me to hell because it is not my zeal that saves me. It is his. He's zealous for you. He's jealous
And if he is, and if you understand that, why not have more zeal for him? If you understand the lengths to which God has gone to save, to redeem, to reconcile, to love, why? Don't we love him in return? That's the motivation for living for worship. Is that he has loved us with such a zeal. And all he has is that we turn around and worship him. That's all. That's all. His zeal should be motivation for our zeal. His zeal accomplished your salvation. Let our zeal accomplish the worship of God in this place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, song says we can't beat you giving no matter how hard we try. We can't beat you loving no matter how hard we try. And this morning we are reminded of the passion and the zeal that you have for your people. Lord, we repent that we have not returned zeal in like fashion. And yet we rejoice that your zeal has accomplished our redemption. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for saving us. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for being jealous and zealous for our redemption. Thank you, Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.